0: Would you pray with me? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you that you have condescended to us in such a way that we can read about who you are every day of our lives, and that we live in a period of history where we have unprecedented access to the word of God. Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning, that your spirit would be with us in such a way that he illuminates the word for us. That he helps us to understand the truths about who you are through what you have said about yourself. And God, we pray that that these songs of worship that we've just lifted up to you, God, that they were glorifying to you, but not only that, that they were edifying to us and to each other. God, we pray that we would understand that God, every time we sing a song in worship to you, it's just a repetition of the truth that you've given us back to you. God, we pray that we would honor you in our worship, and we pray that you would be honored in the preaching of the word this morning, and that, Lord, your spirit would be with those who hear it. God, that you would transform lives as you say that you do. God, it is the the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. We pray that it would go forth this morning, and we know because you have promised that it won't, that it doesn't return void. Lord, be with us as we open your word together. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, you guys. This is... <laughs> I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we're, so, we're so grateful to you all. Um, and we're grateful to God that... He has brought you as a congregation and me and Libby and all of our children together in this way. And it's only only by the providence of God that this could possibly have ever happened. And praise God for that. Now, I never really considered how difficult it would be to choose a book of the Bible to preach on as my first sermon series at a new church. I never really thought of that. It never crossed my mind. I preached to the book of Malachi while I was a, a lay pastor in Houston, uh, but that was born out of a long time, many years of, of knowing that congregation, being a member there and walking with the saints in Houston. So I wasn't starting from a blank slate like I am here, more or less. I didn't have that benefit this week, so uh, I've only been in Wamigo for 10 days, <laughs> Uh, and only at the time when I was trying to choose a a book, three, four days, maybe, uh, although I'd been considering this for a while. But I had to approach the problem in a different way. So the question eventually became, what book can I preach on that will have the greatest impact on as many people as possible without any prior knowledge of what's really going on in the lives of the saints at Trinity Baptist Church? And truly, that's a difficult question to answer. A pastor always always, Tony will attest to this, seeks to prepare sermons for their congregation, to preach to the needs of the sheep that are under their care. We don't climb up these stairs and into this pulpit to give a lecture. The Holy Spirit is active in speaking authoritatively to you through pastors. So when we prepare our sermons, we do so with a mind to the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in your lives, both corporately as a church, and individually. So again, the question is, what book does this congregation that I know very little about, though I am learning about you, and I am grateful for that, what do they need to hear from? But say it's, it's the beautiful thing about the Word of God, and the truth of the matter regarding what you need to hear is, it doesn't depend upon me. <laughs> My choice, whatever book I chose to preach this morning, will be used by the Spirit to speak to you, Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your present trials and tribulations, regardless of even your desire to sit down and listen to this young dude in front of you today—you've never really gotten to know—and that's true, and you know that because you read this this passage on this verse that sits behind the pulpit every week. You come up here, and what does it say? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword. We read in Isaiah that the Word of God does not return void. So now, once I was reminded of that truth and I had a certain liberty, (laughs) the question remained what book do I choose? And as I labored over that question, I, I probably wavered between 10 different books of the Bible. Do I preach from the Old Testament? Or do I preach from the New Testament? Do I, do I go through an, a, a gospel? Or do I use one of the epistles of Paul? Do, do I dive in deep and preach through the book of Revelation? No, 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 not, not yet, not for a long time. In the end, I chose the book of Ephesians. And, and quite frankly, there's very, very simple reasons for why that is the case. There's three that I'm going to give you. One... This book begins with a wonderful, wonderful affirmation of the Reformed theology that we believe and confess at this church. The second reason is that this book clearly shows how that that rich theology affects us and how it changes the way in which we live to become more Christ-like. And saints, don't miss this. I desired to preach this book. I don't believe that the Spirit's inactive throughout the week as the preacher is preparing their sermons. I don't. As they labor over texts, or even in the choosing of those texts, I'm sure that the Spirit was active when I chose the book of Ephesians. And I'm sure that the Spirit desires to work in a specific way in your lives and in my life through the preaching of the book of Ephesians. I'm not saying that I received some vision or some dream where God told me that you must speak and you must preach this book. No, instead what I'm saying is that God is so meticulously sovereign over all things that it gives me confidence that my prayerful desire to preach through the book of Ephesians is a desire placed in me by God for your good. Because he works all things together for what? The good of those who love him. Amen? Amen. So what should you expect from this series? Well, I've titled it, Life in Christ, as you can see. And for good reason. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians from a prison cell in Rome. If anyone had a right to whine or complain about their life to God, it was Paul. Paul was imprisoned on several occasions. He shipwrecked once. He had everything in his life turned upside down as Christ entered into his life. Paul, who once had the greatest social status among the Pharisees and he's brought low by God to be his servant and bringing our faith into maturity. And now he sits in a prison cell for years at a time yet not without hope. Paul hears from his associates and visitors that come to him in jail from all across the land about the church's growth And he hears of new groups of Christians coming together to worship God. His followers report to him how the church has grown along with areas where it's struggling. And he wrote to them to exhort them, to rebuke them at times, to defend the faith. And ultimately, he wrote so that the glory of God would be revealed and that it would be greater understood by the people of God. And that's why he wrote the book of Ephesians In fact, if you want a sort of a hack to remembering the structure of Ephesians, it's it's a really simple one to use. And it's that Paul begins with theology, and he ends with doxology. Theology to doxology. And, And really, this is how our own worship ought to be patterned as well. We read a statement about the truth of who God is, and then we respond turning that back to praise in Him. And that can be done in music. That can be done in the simple reading of the Word, or anywhere Theology, truth about God, naturally leads to doxology, praising God. And the book of Ephesians is a perfect example of that. Paul begins the book by explaining truths about God, his salvation, uh, or, or sorry, his sovereignty, our salvation in Christ. He moves on to discuss the theological truths of how we are changed in our very natures and how that allows us to have real unity in and with Christ. He talks about the triune work of perseverance and the love of Christ and the work of the church. And then, this is all truth and theology that that Paul is laying out for us. And then in chapter 4, he says, "Therefore," And he commands us to walk worthy of the life we've been given. And he spends three more chapters playing out what that looks like. It's a beautiful structure and I'm really excited to dive into. Remember this today, if nothing else. This series will go from theology to doxology, the truth of God's word to the application of it in our lives to the praise of his name. And this is the Christian life. We learn God's word that we may become more like Christ and we find life in him. Now with all that out of the way, by way of introduction, that's a lot, but we're beginning a book and I wanted to make sure we had a good overview of what the book is. We're going to get into the text today. Would you all stand with me as you would and read from the book of Ephesians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 6. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You can be seated. Well, Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians in much the same way he begins most of his letters, by identifying himself and by stating who he's addressing the letter to. It's the same thing you would do when you are writing a letter. You know, you may have from at the very bottom, you may include it at the top, but you know that you are identifying yourself to the recipient of these letters. But even this short little salutation that Paul gives is chock full of richness to us. For example, when Paul identifies himself, he doesn't just write from Paul, like we might write to a pen pal. Paul's identification here is extremely important because it's it's not just a way for the reader to know who is writing, okay? It's not just the identity of the person who is writing the letter that is being communicated here, but also the authority of the person who wrote it. Paul says in verse 1 that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This isn't just a statement to say that, hey guys, this is Paul. I'm, I'm an apostle. You mightn't have heard of me. No. Rather, Paul wants the reader to know that his words carry weight and authority. By way of illustration, all, all throughout history, up until really recently, honestly, in the modern area, kings would send out letters to their nobles, to their military commanders, to whomever. And what did they use to seal those letters? It's called a, a, a signet ring. Okay? I mean I have an Aggie ring. It's not exactly I've got a couple of Aggies in the house this morning. I got an Aggie ring. Not exactly the same as a signet ring, but it's got, you know, it's got the designs on it, and that's something that you would have seen. It's a ring that had a very specific design that was used only by the king in his communications. And they would drop the wax onto the letter and they would seal it with that signet ring so they knew who it was coming from. And that messenger, when he bore that letter to whomever they were giving it to, the person who was receiving the letter knew. That this letter is being read by this messenger and being delivered this messenger by the authority of their king. That should start to sound familiar to you. (laughs) This concept's not at all foreign to Paul. I mean, this would have been happening already, the same method of delivery, in some places, to some extent, in Paul's day. And it's that sort of authority that Paul is calling on in the first line of his letter. He identifies himself as an apostle, which quite literally means one who is sent like a messenger. <laughs> he is a messenger to the church that bears the authority of his king, whom he identifies in the very next words of Jesus Christ. Paul isn't sent by his own authority. He's not sent by the authority of the Jerusalem council or Rome or any earthly power. He is sent by the one who is above all earthly powers, Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And as for the addressees, those who are Receiving the letter, and this is extremely important, so don't miss it. Paul writes to the saints which are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul here is addressing a specific group of people with this letter. Those saints who have put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus and that also reside in the city of Ephesus. So who is this letter addressing? the church, and specifically, the church in Ephesus. Not the rulers of Ephesus, not just to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and especially not just to Ephesian people in general. It is a letter specifically for the church, and this helps us greatly as we read. We can see how problems that arise for the Ephesian church can be addressed, and that guides our response as we address similar problems arising in our own day, in our own church. It's a letter that any Christian should be able to read and gain greatly from. Because as Paul says elsewhere, all Scripture is what? Breathed out or given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Then Paul concludes the salutation with a phrase that he used in nearly every letter in some variation. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Honestly, a whole sermon could be spent talking about those two words and the way that he uses them. And I very nearly considered doing that. (laughs) But I believe that Paul elaborates so much on these concepts of grace and peace throughout the book of Ephesians that it would be a little redundant. So for now, let me just give a quick thought on each of those. Grace. Grace here, it must not mean a saving grace because he's already talking to believers. He's talking to saints who are faithful in Christ. He's just identified them as such. That's already been made clear. So they have received that salvific grace. So that being the case, when he says, grace to you, This must necessarily mean a kind of grace that increases in the life of the believer. And I think that's what Paul is going to expand on greatly, especially in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians. And as far as peace goes, Paul can be referencing any number of areas where we need peace, and probably is addressing all of them, frankly. Peace with God. Peace with each other. Peace within ourselves. But regardless of the case, these two qualities, grace and peace, can only come from the one who has the power to give them, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, I might remind you, is called the Prince of Peace. And so we come to, if you notice in the bulletin, that this sermon was titled, Spiritual Blessings in the Heavenly Places. And so I want to talk about what those spiritual blessings are this morning. But before we get to that, we're getting to the meat of the letter, and Paul jumps right in, in verse 3. And let's just read verse 3 together. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All right, I've titled the sermon that because I believe that for all the beauty of the verses that follow, really, and for all the rich theology and comforting truth that the word gives us through Paul in those verses, this verse, verse 3 it contains the summary or the summation of all that follows, all the way up really to verse 15 when Paul begins the next thought. But if we could step aside before we jump into that just for a moment. Have you, have you noticed what Paul is doing here? Instead of coldly saying that God has blessed us and then focusing the passage on those things that we have received, Paul begins the letter from the very first phrase in worship to God himself. He doesn't say, God's done this and that for us, but rather, praise God for the things that he has done for us. You see the difference? It's minute, but it's important. It makes it clear that Paul is intending to offer up praise to God for God's actions among us, rather than making any of what follows about us at all. It's a difference between, look at all this stuff God gave me, and look at this great God who did all of this for me. Do You hear the difference there? It's important. And so Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's focused on the source. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, The practical man is not one who runs after the blessings, but rather the one who considers the source of those blessings and is in touch with that source. I want you to look very carefully at this verse because I think there's even more to it than meets the eye. This verse is a verse that extols the gracious work of our Trinitarian, Triune God. It's a Trinitarian passage. Who is the person of the Trinity that has blessed us? Well, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. The Father has blessed us. He is the source of the blessing, and it's to him that we ascribe these wonderful works. But having a source, we need a catalyst that catalyst is Christ. At the end of the verse, we see that Father has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Without Christ, these blessings cannot be brought to bear on us. And finally, you'll note that the blessings being given to us are spiritual blessings. And this means that the Spirit is active in the product of what the source is giving us through Christ the Godhead. Our triune God is blessing us, and we in turn bless him. We turn our praise to him for that, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, though, I cannot stress enough how important that middle part is, (laughs) that catalyst. It is in Christ that our hope is found. It is in Christ that we are turned from enemies of God to friends of God. According to Romans 5, it says that very specifically. We'll turn there later, actually. It is in Christ alone, we just sang a, that beautiful hymn, in Christ alone, that we find reconciliation with God that allows us to experience these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. To reinforce this, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ Shall all be made alive. If we are dead in Adam, how can we experience spiritual blessings? Those who are spiritually dead cannot. They simply cannot experience spiritual blessings. How can that which is dead experience spiritual blessings and the spirit that brings life? They can't. And we also read in 1 Corinthians. Um, In chapter two, it says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see the connection there. Without Christ, who it is testified or who is testified to by the Holy Spirit and His work of regeneration in us, there is no hope for us, and there is certainly no spiritual blessings in heavenly places. They don't exist for those who remain in the flesh. They don't exist. For those who are in the flesh. And that is why we preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Amen? The question remains though, what what exactly are these spiritual blessings? On a certain sense, Paul is speaking to that question for the next two chapters. As we read past our passage this morning, and we'll get there next week, we start to see Paul speaking of an inheritance that we receive. He speaks of the power of Christ being wrought in us on the earth. In chapter 2, he begins to describe the blessing of regeneration and being grafted into the people of God as Gentiles. This is a long directory of blessings from the Spirit to our souls. But more narrowly for our passage this morning, the blessings told to us immediately after the statement itself. What comes out of these immediate blessings are elaborated on in the following verses, and we'll, we'll cover those next week. But the blessings that Paul immediately lists here, after explaining that there are blessings, are these. One, God sovereignly chooses, and out of that flows a blessing of justification and a blessing of adoption. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. This has all been introduction. <laughs> so Paul says here, Right in the next verse, uh, verse four, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I'm going to stop there. Church, I want to ask you if you've ever really considered the depths of the meaning of that verse. We are chosen before the foundation of the world. I want to connect this back to what I was saying before. This passage of Scripture is first and foremost a song of praise to our great God because he is the one who does all of the work in us. All of it. Remember, I said the focus is not on the work, but rather the source of that work. Of course, it does elaborate on the work itself. But my point is this. As we read this verse, we have to understand that there is no sense in which this choice is done by any sort of merit on our own part. We are chosen before the foundation of the world. So how on earth could we possibly have merited anything? No, rather, outside of Christ, we are all lost in Adam, dead in our trespasses and sins, and actually, what we merit is eternal judgment. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, because we'll be here for for just a minute, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 37. I'll give you a minute to find it, but I, I love this passage of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 37. This chapter out of Ezekiel, one of the, the great prophets in the Old Testament, it's such a beautiful image of the salvation that we have in Christ. Ezekiel chapter 37. In verse 1, it says this. This is Ezekiel speaking. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Now listen to the response of Ezekiel. So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Ezekiel does not. But, O Lord God, you know. God knows whether these bones can live or not, and only he knows. Then look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. What an incredible image for us of the new birth. We are regenerated. We are made new. We are given new eyes to see, new ears to hear. Paul would also write to the Colossians, You, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven your trespasses. Here in Ezekiel, do you see who is doing all of the work? It says... I will cause breath to enter into you. I will put sinews on you. I will put breath into you. The work of salvation belongs to the Lord. We bring nothing to the table. And because of that, we have nothing to boast about. Paul will eventually make this point in our study of Ephesians. You can look ahead to chapter 2, verse 8, if you flip back to Ephesians. And he says this in 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The entire act of our salvation rests upon the sovereign work of God alone. We are chosen before the foundation of the world to be what? Well, to be Christ's sheep. In John ten twenty seven, our Lord Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. That should ring familiar. And they follow me. In verse 29 of that same chapter, it tells us that the Father has given them to the Son, and no one will be able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I'm sh- the sure testimony of Scripture is that Christ has chosen us according to his good pleasure. I want to come back to the second part of that verse, but before I do, look ahead just a bit to verse 5, it says, uh, where it says, he has predestined us to adoption as sons by what? The good pleasure of his will. And again, saints, I cannot stress enough how often we miss this. God's election of his sheep is not of us, but only by the good pleasure of his will. So when we're tempted to think that our salvation is this, is, this is application, okay? If you listen to nothing else, listen right now. But when we're tempted to think that our salvation is somehow in jeopardy because of our doubts, our anxieties, the trials and tribulations that we're going through at any given time, We can think back to this verse and we can know that it is God who is the one who elects. It is God who is the one who gives us life. It is God who is the one who indwells us with the spirit who will surely, surely bring to perfection the good work that he began in you. Surely. (laughs) When you fall back into that habitual sin as a Christian, I mean, you must, of course, seek to mortify it. You do whatever you must to kill it. Even if that means scorched earth, Jesus tells us that if our right hand causes us to sin, what do we do? Cut it off. That's not a lackadaisical approach. That's scorched earth. And we only have the ability to do that through the power of the Spirit within us. But even if you fall into that sin again, even if you find yourself in that same dark place, you can have assurance of your salvation because it's not of works nor of anything you've done. God chose you, put sinews on your dry bones, covered you with skin, put breath in you and you live and nothing can take that away from you, dear saint. It was God's good pleasure to predestine you to adoption. Don't be arrogant enough to believe that you or your sin can override the good pleasure of the will of God. Take heart in that. And so out of this sovereign choice pours out these two blessings mentioned here in the text. And these are those spiritual blessings. We're finally getting there. First, that we should be holy and without blame. And second, that we would be adopted as sons. And regarding the holiness and the the blamelessness, I want to point out two things. First and foremost, note the order that Paul has laid out this text in. It doesn't say that we are holy And then predestined. Okay? Let's look at verse 5 again. Or verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy. It tells us we are chosen in that way. Now John Calvin puts it this way. He says, This leads us to conclude that holiness, purity, and every excellence that is found among men are the fruit of election. So that once more, Paul expressly puts aside every consideration of merit. He puts it aside. If God has foreseen in us anything worthy of election, it would have been stated in language the very opposite of what is here employed, and which plainly means that all of our holiness and purity of life flow from the election of God. So we can see here pretty clearly that God's sovereign choice, and in fact, his work of regeneration, as we described earlier, are the means by which we possess any sort of holiness. But on the other side of the same coin... We can also say that because these words are here at all, our election does not give us, what it does not do is give us freedom to sin. Of course, Paul states this very theme all over Scripture. It's very, it's all all over his letters in particular. Uh, But let's look at a specific place where we'll see it in view. If you want to follow along, you can turn to the book of Romans in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is coming right on the heels of chapter 5 of Romans, which is an incredible piece of scripture. And you may want to keep a thumb here because we will actually return to Romans in a bit. <clears throat> but it comes right on the heels of chapter 5, which outlines the ramifications of both Adam's sin and Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's in that chapter that, that Paul explains how we are turned from enemies of God into friends of God. We are justified by his blood. And that it was solely by the one man, Jesus' obedience, that many are made righteous. And then we get to chapter 6, which begins in verse 1 with, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, or by no means. (laughs) How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Paul goes on here to remind us that our spiritual lives really mirror Christ's and that we have life through him. And then in verse 12, he says this, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace! Praise God that we are given the power to resist and to mortify sin while we live under grace. Saints, we have a a duty to be holy. I'm sure you've had that word holy defined for you at some point in your life as separate, and I think I think that's a good working definition, honestly. Something that is holy has been consecrated. It has been set aside for use of God alone. And that's exactly the case for us. First, First Corinthians 6 tells us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit within us. And that we are not our own, but we are bought with a price. Just as the priests consecrated the temple in the Old Testament, we are ourselves to be set aside For the purposes of God. And that means not chasing after the pleasures of this world. Ultimately, or unfortunately, in this day, the idea of personal holiness has kind of gone by the wayside. A huge amount of churches in America have abandoned any sense of biblical fidelity. They They have given themselves over to woke secular ideologies, false perceptions of the holiness of our God. Since I've been here, I've heard of churches even here in Mamego that are affirming churches, not simply welcoming individuals who are openly homosexual or transsexual, but, but also affirming that there is nothing wrong with their lifestyle. It's a contradiction to the clear word of God. And I wish that I could say this is uncommon, but unfortunately, in today's day and age, the simple truth of the matter is that churches like Trinity Baptist Church that hold to a biblical sexual ethic and they keep a high view of God are becoming less common while the others grow in number and size. Yeah. I, watched a, I watched a video last night of a church who had brought in a drag queen to give their testimony to the congregation with young children sitting in front of him. The priest at this church Church, twisted scripture to imply that we need to renew our minds to be more welcoming to men who are dressed provocatively as women. Where is the holiness? Where is the concern for truth? And and don't misunderstand me, saints. Of course, we want to be welcoming to those who are struggling with sin in their lives. We want to make every person who walks through those doors, and even the people that don't, that we're ministering to in the community, We want to make sure that they feel welcome to be here at the church. But that is not the same thing as affirming. We don't affirm the abuser. We don't affirm the alcoholic. We don't affirm the adulterer. We don't affirm the person who's addicted to pornography. We don't affirm the prideful. We don't affirm the haughty. We don't affirm them. Why should we affirm the person who is in rebellion to the clear commands of God regarding human sexuality and God's design? We don't affirm them. What we do do is speak the truth in love to them. We pray for them. We minister to their souls in hopes that the Lord will do the work that only he can do. And he can choose them for adoption as sons. And then the Spirit of God will do the rest. If that's you sitting in the audience, the congregation here struggling to know or struggling because you know, because it's written all over your heart that God's law requires us to be conformed to the image of Christ and to seek after holiness, that you found yourself embroiled in lust and anger and licentiousness, there is hope for you in the person and work of Christ. There is hope for you. You may have seen that same video, or you may have walked the streets of Manhattan and seen a hundred young men and women in open rebellion and thought, at least I'm not like them. But deep down, you know that you've been in your own quiet rebellion. You've had your own quiet rebellion against God for years and years, and there's hope for you in the person and work of Christ. We look at the extremes, but we need to understand that sin no matter how small, is incompatible with the presence of God. There is hope for us. Because Christ died for us, the one man who was ever truly holy and blameless, as Ephesians says. We can be restored to God if we would but believe in his name. Christ, who is perfectly innocent, God with us and crucified, dead and buried and raised to life in accordance with the scriptures. And as we confess... In the apostles creed every week that if you would but call on him you would be reconciled to god you would be made a friend and would be covered by the righteousness of christ it's in him we find our justification it's his holiness his blamelessness that sustains us any holiness or blamelessness in us is only a byproduct of the salvation we have in him that's that's the gospel If you haven't ever understood that, I pray that the Spirit would move in your life today and that you would do so and that you would experience the blessings that come next because we're not done. Look back in our text at Ephesians at verse 5. We have been predestined. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world. but, But for what? What does our justification in Christ alone entitle us to? Well, verse 5 tells us that we have been predestined to what? To adoption as sons. What an incredible privilege it is, dear saints, to be called a child of God. We who were once enemies not only have been reconciled to him, but we've been made sons of God. Can you think for a minute about how incredible that is? I want you to imagine for a second your worst enemy in this world. I know this sounds terrible coming from the preacher. Imagine your worst enemy, someone who's, who's tormented you since grade school. Maybe they picked on you on the playground, or maybe they took business opportunities away from you, or maybe, I don't know, maybe something far, far more sinister. But it is so, so difficult to think of any way to find peace with that person, is it not? Okay, now, with that difficulty in mind, I want you to remember that your sin places you in a position that, that same position with God, but to the thousandth degree and more. <laughs> there is no equivalent on this earth to the amount of offense that we cause to God through our sin. An infinitely righteous and just God, who has every right to judge us however he chooses, because he created us. <laughs> and we actually have the audacity to sin against him. I keep returning to Romans 5, but I think because it's so applicable to this passage. It, verse six, verses 6 through 8 say, For when we were still without strength, in other words, unable to do anything to save ourselves of our own accord, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps even for a good man someone might dare to die. We aren't, we aren't good men in the eyes of God, by the way but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. I can't stress it enough. We were enemies and miscreants in the eyes of God. But in Christ, in Christ we are adopted as sons. That is the power of the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. I mean, could you imagine adopting your mortal enemy and then promising them that not only would they have Would they have peace with you? You're no longer going to be in opposition to them. But you're also going to richly bless them. Are you starting to understand even a fraction of the grace that our God has shown us? So what does it mean to be adopted as a son of God? I haven't gotten to know all of you the way I should like just yet but I can certainly think of at least one person in here or one group who, who has adopted adoptive family someone in here has adopted a child children who are adopted and I'm sure there are more than the ones that I know I haven't had that privilege myself but I know many who have recently a friend of mine just adopted a, a baby boy and I had a chance to talk with him and I asked him sort of in jest but cuz I knew what the answer was going to be I said well do you love him Of course, he's going to say, yes, I love my son. But his answer, I was taken aback by it, honestly. He didn't say yes. He (laughs) He said, with everything that I have. Saints, this is what it means to be adopted as sons. On the grounds of our election in Christ, we aren't just given a pass on some stuff and then everything proceeds as normal. No. When we are saved and adopted as sons... Through Christ Jesus, God shows his love for us with everything he has. I'm looking forward to talking more about that next week when we consider the verses that follow this passage. Because church, the benefits of being in Christ are innumerable and they're unfathomable. You may be wondering how any of this could be possible. Why on earth would God do something like this? If we're so sinful... Why not just leave us alone and let us destroy ourselves as we most certainly would if it were not for his restraining hand upon us, even in our, even in our sinfulness. <clears throat> why, why would he go out of his way to do all of these things and weave this, this wonderful, beautiful story of redemption for us, for a people who don't deserve it? And here once again, saints, I have to remind you that it is not about you. Look at verse 6. Paul says here that we are adopted according to the good pleasure of his will, one verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The whole act of redemption is not about us. Our lives, from the very breath that we breathe, from the rains that fall on our heads, to the very salvation of our souls, is a grand theater for the Lord to show his great drama of redemption, that he would receive the glory Question three of the catechism that we use with our kids, it asks them, why did God make you and all things? The answer is incredibly simple. Does anyone know it? For his own glory. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. There is, there is such comfort to be had in that. At first glance, it sounds like a negative thing to our carnal minds because we desire glory for ourselves. We seek it out in everything we do. But God does not share glory. It all belongs to him. And we, glory in his grace, by which he what? He made us accepted in the beloved. It's the end of this passage this morning. He made us accepted in the beloved. It's all through Christ, church. We are accepted in the beloved one. That is Christ. And look at the way Paul speaks Throughout this whole chapter going forward, in verse 4, it says, He chose us in Him. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in Him you have trusted. In Him, in Him, in Him. It's all through Christ. We are nothing without Him, but may we seek to be holy and blameless in Him glorifying God in praise and thankfulness for his sovereign choice in adopting us as sons. Would you pray with me? Father, gracious, merciful, sovereign Father, you who love us with everything that you have, you who did not spare your only Son, but gave him as a sacrifice of propitiation for us, so that we may come to the table, we may have fellowship with you once again. We we may be counted as as friends, not just not just neutral, but friends of God. Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us with spiritual blessings. And we pray that as we consider and we meditate on those spiritual blessings, that they would drive us to be holy and blameless before you. Even though we know that we cannot, while there is indwelling sin in us, Father, we pray that we would rely on Christ and that we would seek to follow after him. God, guide us in your spirit. Help us to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, we praise you for the wonderful truths that you've given us in the book of Ephesians. We praise you that you've allowed us to congregate this morning. We praise you that you have, in your good providence, put us in a position where we can hear your word, that we can benefit from it, and that we can actually, with, 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 in reality, <laughs> seek to follow after you in a meaningful way that your word commands in us. God, help us Help us to always keep you at the forefront of our minds. Lord, we, we love you. We are so grateful for your son, Jesus. And it's in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.